You have a plain outfit, you know, not like a P-L-A-I-N, but a P-L-A-N-E outfit, like what you wear on airplanes. Like every time? Sort of, because like I usually have a plane outfit that I know like this is what works on airplanes. I have a formula, I think. It's not like a defined one. I'm like saying it like I have this like like inputs and outputs, but like, I mean, I've got I've got like probably internalized guidelines at this point. What's your theorem of plane flight? I mean, I'd always wear easy pants, so that continues. And I, to be honest, I think I've just translated my plane outfit into my regular outfit. Is what I'm learning, articulating this out loud. But uh, usually, shoes that are super accessible, um, mm-hmm. because you still got to take those off. Yeah, and then it's just got to be. There has to be elastic waistband. Not because like I plan on eating a lot on a plane, but it's just like sitting in a fixed waistband. I hate fixed waistbands anyway, but sitting for a long time just doesn't sound great. I don't know why mm-hmm. I prepare for plane travel. Like I'm going to be stuck in like a box for 14 hours, but that's kind of how I do it. Um, something that can be folded into a pillow that I won't be able to sleep on. so like a hoodie. And then mm-hmm. uh, the jacket that doesn't fit neatly into the, into the bag. If it's a cold weather situation. Mm-hmm. That's what you're wearing. Yeah. Onto the plane. Are you one of those people that like puts your jacket in the overhead bin? No, I use I use as, as much pillow as I can. I try to get window seats. Good man, good man. Yeah, I'm also a window seat person. I don't wear like a leisure suit either. I'm not like wearing like a matching top and bottom track situation. Nor do I. The people who travel in suits worry me. I've never been a suit plane guy. I don't. I don't trust those people. They worry me, like. What are we like three degrees removed from Patrick Bateman? Mm-hmm. You're on a plane. Come on. This is yeah, like I hear though that it, it, it does get you the, the bumps, but like I, I never fly respectably enough to like ever get bumped. Is that an incentive? Like they'll bump you up to first if you're wearing a suit because you look good? So I've heard. So I've heard. It's no no wonder why I've never been bumped up to first. I look like I'm lucky I made it to the airport. That's like the aesthetic I'm going. It's like, oh, he got here. David, I feel like you're a uniform guy. Do you have a uniform for the airport? Oh, absolutely. What is it? uh, I'm on the same wavelength of slip-on shoes, but I typically wear roper boots, like no no laces, because you can get them on and off easy, and also you can step through like burning fire and metal. I think like decently with those. Always jeans, you know, I, I just wear jeans pretty much exclusively. And I always have a hat of some kind that you can like pull down over your eyes, like a beanie or like another like uh, opaque baseball cap type thing. Quint hat worked well for that. And I usually wear my uh, vintage flight jacket, my uh, CW45P, because it it can crumple up like a pillow. Um, And also it is fireproof because it was designed for, you know, people crashing in airplanes. Flight jackets, huh? That's what we're doing today. We're doing flight jackets, but we're not talking about flight jackets in this. You know, I was like, okay, I think I can get up to like World War One in this episode. And that just did not happen. Classic shock. I was way too excited by uh, tales of people from the Middle Ages, like gluing feathers to themselves and dying. Oh, my and, gosh. And uh, the Union Army Balloon Corps. I know nothing about the first and I can, I feel like I know a lot about the second, not like from personal experience, but there's a lot of descriptors there. Have we updated that at all? Sadly, no, we do not have a, a new core of aeronauts no. in the way that we did in the 1860s. People have deemed it ineffective. I feel like it's a quiet way to travel. 
Yeah, it's it was a pet project of Abraham Lincoln because he like read about it in a book and was like, this seems neat. Let's do that. He's like, there's not enough going on. I will conquer the skies. <laughs> then there was the uh, there was a response. There was a like Confederacy balloon corps that came up like in opposition to them, which is sort of like a monitor and Merrimack type situation but with balloons and like way more underpublicized. And most of these balloons were full of hydrogen, so they were incredibly explosive. At the same time that it's... Uh, and they figured that out. Like, oh, yeah. So many people died in, like, balloon experiments. And then and then when they built the Hindenburg, they were still like, let's, let's go with the hydrogen route. You know, you, you got to make it <laughs> make it till you, you get there. You, I guess they fake it till you make it, because they weren't faking it. Like, real people died. And they really got off the ground, but... Uh, but I feel yeah. like that would have been like after the whole Tide Pod fiasco, someone being like, yeah, but let's do this with smoothies. <laughs> like not no. singles. I want the whole fruit. The The hydrogen is just how they did it. That's the only thing that they had available to them. You know, they could have done helium, but it wasn't nearly as efficient and like it made people's voices sound dumb. <laughs> Was it hard to like take orders from a guy who sounded like like Chippendale? I guess, you know, they, all those people had to die, but I suppose it was worth it just for that one extra uh, veneer of professionalism in the ballooning crowd. They're like, this would be safe. And they're like, but the octaves. What about the octaves? Welcome to Heddle's Blowout. I'm David Shuck here with Reed Nelson. How's it going? <laughs> and we're here to do another ambiguously long history series. I, I don't know how long this one's going to be, but if you liked our 13 episodes on the history of denim, strap in, Maverick, because we're coming at you with who knows how many on the history of the flight jacket. Does that make you Iceman? I think it makes me goose. I don't think I'm going to make it to the end of this one. I'm going to die around like episode eight. If, if you're 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 piloting this this ship, though, uh, I go down with you on like Top Gun. Well, you know, there, there there's some things that uh, you just have to be here for. Reed, goodness gracious, great balls of fire. <laughs> the flight jackets—they hold a spot near and dear to me because feel like they're intrinsically tied to a lot of other things like the space race, the Cold War. And you know, I got to make my own weird space race shoe collab a few years back. And you know, the development in aerospace in the last hundred years also had to be complemented by the development of new clothes. Like as the airplane gets better, your clothes have to get better for the airplane or else you'll die. And that's kind of exciting. Most everything that we're going to be discussing was designed by governmental research and development, whether that's military or scientific. And we're primarily going to be focusing on those made in the United States, but it is fascinating to see the different ways countries approach the same problem. So, like, have you ever seen the Soviet spacesuits designed to walk on the moon? You ever see those at the Air and Space Museum? Yeah, I, the Smithsonian, I think, right? They've got one yeah. on display. Yeah, they are bonkers. They're like these, like, disco rhinestone things that have, like, pieces of wood on them. I mean, every, I feel like wood is wood is well widely known as a great space travel uh, mm -hmm. material. And you get into them by like opening up the like it's like a back door there's on a the hatch. suit. Yeah, there's a it's hatch. It's a hatch, on those. and then you like 
climb into it, you know, like you're getting into an exoskeleton. They're 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 super cool. It's like the men of honor diving suit that Cuba Gooding Jr. wears. The courtroom mm-hmm. scene. But it's for Russians on the moon. Yeah, yes, similar. Although I don't think they have the cool face mask like the one in the, the diving suits used to have. No, not as cool. They had it's like a gold uh like reflective type thing. They were shiny they, though. They they were similarly shiny. That's what I do remember. Definitionally, what are what are we talking about when we talk about flight jackets? So flight jacket, I guess for the purpose of what we're gonna be discussing, is some piece of outerwear designed for the specific purpose of piloting an airplane, spacecraft, helicopter, you know, something that leaves the ground. I wasn't aware that this was like a Raymond Carver, what we talk about when we talk about love situation. <laughs> exactly, but it's it's flight jackets. Yeah, no, I I, I accept that definition. And thinking about like what a flight jacket does and like what are the difficulties of flying that it helps to uh, protect you from or ameliorate the unpleasantness of flying. Number one, it's cold. The early planes were open air, so you had the elements blasting directly at you depending on what the weather was like. And then also as the altitude like uh, gets higher, the air gets thinner and it gets even colder still. And um, it's windy as you might expect, is like with open air, whatever speed you're traveling at, is the speed of the wind is hitting you in the chest. So windproof is sort of a must. Then you might get set on fire. Like if you're flying in anything other than a 737 MAX, like early planes were not nearly as robust as the ones that we're experiencing today. And early in a military plane that might have to like fight something other than the elements, you need to be protected from a crash and the ensuing fire. And then atmospheric protections. You know, sometimes the air gets so thin that you can't breathe and the jacket itself has to provide its own atmospheric protection and oxygen for the pilot. It's a lot of specs. We're getting a bit ahead of ourselves because the first pilots for the first planes really didn't give a shit about any of the things that protected them from flying. They just wanted to fly. And for that, we're going to start with the first things that left the ground several hundred years ago. We live in a fast-paced world. Sometimes, you just need to slow down and stop. Heddles Plus, the new membership program of exclusive content, giveaways, discounts, and a community chat forum. Try a month free with the code EXTRABLOWOUT. People have dreamed about flying since practically the beginning of recorded history, as we've basically looked at birds with envy and derision for all of our cognizant lives. And the oldest known depiction of human flight is dated between 2350 and 2150 BC. And this is a four centimeter high clay seal in which uh, uh, in the Museum of Ancient Near Eastern Antiquities in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, it has a 10 centimeter wide clay relief showing the shepherd Etana riding an eagle. The first thing that we can see of people flying or trying to fly or imagining flying. The merch for the Museum of Ancient Near Eastern Antiquities in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin has to be the most crowded shit of all time. It's like just imagine it in uh, Barbara Kruger font. It's just like forty-two words. <laughs> uh, we should uh, sell bootleg merch to this museum. Sign me up. And then, in people actually attempting to fly. We've got a lot of stories of people putting on bird wings or attaching themselves to kites or rockets and horribly injuring themselves or killing themselves. Do you think they were super confident before they would do this? 
Like, do you think like when they would strap that on, they'd be like, they'd look behind them and be like, I don't know what you guys are freaking out about. This is going to fucking work. Yeah. I think that you have to have some confidence in it, right? Like if you're going to do it, like there's no one that's doing this thinking they're going to die. I just like the next person. Like one dude does the wing thing and then the next guy's like, no, what was wrong was the wings were too small. I've got this. So the, Andalusian scientist Abbas Ibn Furnas in 810 to 887 AD reportedly made a jump in Cordoba, Spain, covering his body with vulture feathers and attaching two wings to his arms. Furnas flew some distance before landing with some injuries attributed to his lacking a tail, as birds used to land. So it wasn't the wings were too small, it was that he didn't have a tail. Do we think the f- body feathers mattered? Like, I'm wondering what, like, when he looked at it, he was like, the key to the vultures flying is they've got feathers on their chest. Probably. You know, they they aren't really making the connection between, like, uh, drag coefficient and stuff like that and trying to displace air. It's just like, birds fly. Birds have feathers. We don't have feathers. We don't fly. Hmm. It's like considering the roof rack on a car to be, like, a key element of that thing going. (laughs) Yeah, it's a cargo cult, but just like us looking at birds and being angry. Oh, he wasn't the last guy, though. Writing in the 12th century, William of Malmesbury stated that 11th century Benedictine monk Eilmer of Malmesbury attached wings to his hands and feet and flew a short distance but broke both legs while landing, also having neglected to make himself a tail. Same mistake twice. How far do do they have, like... Was it just like marginally farther than a jump? Like how far was the distance these people were traveling with just strapped on wings? Because like if if like all they needed was a tail, why didn't someone just rock a tail? Well, because they broke their legs. I mean, and obviously they didn't just know the tail was the issue, but like <laughs> I'm just I guess I'm like a little confused. It seems like we have a seems like we were very close to flying unless it was like, you know, 12 feet and Carl Lewis was just like out jumping them by 1980 back in the, these early times i don't think anyone was uh, they didn't have standard units of measurement and it was literally some monk like writing this down in like a, on a piece of illuminated manuscript so it's sort of hard to to take any of this stuff as fact i'd take vase um, standard measurement you know like they flew like 12 vases <laughs> well we didn't get that until much later on in like the 1500s because we have some records of Leonardo da Vinci experimenting with gliders in the late 1400s, but there's no evidence that he actually tried one. He was smart. But then in 1496, there's a guy named Seccio that broke both of his arms in Nuremberg while attempting flight. And then in 1507, John Damien strapped on wings covered with chicken feathers and jumped from the walls of Stirling Castle in Scotland, breaking his thigh. He later blamed it on not using eagle feathers. Naturally. How, these people, I know that the broken limbs are not a joke, I guess. I mean, some... I mean, especially in the 1500s. Yeah, like, that's not good, but, like, I just... I guess that's changes context a little bit, but, like, the fact that all these people are jumping from pretty serious heights... I do jumped off a castle. Even if it's, mm-hmm. like, two stories. I mean, I guess that's, like, a pretty standard thigh-breaking. Like, it takes Broke a lot to thigh. break your femur. But, I mean, he lived to blame it on not using eagle feathers. You know? But that's, like, how far we got in about 800, like, 900 years. It was, like, people are still, 
People are still using chicken feathers and bird feathers and being like, oh, shit, I should have put on a tail. I should have used different feathers. It's fascinating that the feathers thing was like what they were really holding on to. Looking at the entire structure of an animal, they were like, gotta be the fucking feathers, man. But the first recorded instance of anyone actually getting off the ground and not immediately falling back down isn't until the 1700s when people give up the feathers and start making balloons. So the the first documented balloon flight in Europe was a model made by the Brazilian-born Portuguese priest Bartolomeu de Gusamao. Gus Gusmao. I don't I don't I'll accept Portuguese. either pronunciation. Gusmao, like Luis Guzman. Judge's rule. On 8 August 1709 in Lisbon, he made a small hot air balloon of paper with a fire burning beneath it, lifting it about four meters in front of King John V and the Portuguese court. He got an audience with the king, huh? Yeah, to, to lift his little balloon. And this inspired a whole wave of ballooning. That uh, in the mid-18th century, the Montgolfier brothers began experimenting with parachutes and balloons in France. And their balloons were made of paper and uh, early experiments using steam lifting the gas were short-lived due to its effect on the paper as it condensed. So, you know, you had wet paper. Just disintegrating like cotton candy when they're in the air. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) And mistaking smoke for a kind of steam, they began filling their balloons with hot, smoky air, which they called electric smoke. Despite not fully understanding the principles at work, they made some successful launches in December 1782, flew a 20-cubic-meter balloon to a height of 300 meters. The Montgolfier brothers sound like wild people. Like, they were the types of guys that if you heard they were throwing a party, you went to that party. Yeah, they had electric smoke. Yeah. Did they land that thing from 300 meters, or did the the paper just disintegrate and they... (laughs) That was it. I, I think they were they were all right. I think they they made it, uh, or, or it, it was not mentioned if they fell from a height of three hundred meters because you know that's a thing that, that would have broken more than your thigh. Yeah, I don't think they would have walked away from that one. But after that, balloons became like a, a big novelty in in Europe in the the eighteen hundreds. Sort of like I don't know, imagine like windsurfing or some other expensive and ridiculous hobby. They had hot air balloons in the town I went to high school in. It's a big Western thing. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I just like the idea of, like, someone at a party in, in the night, like, the early 1900s just being like, have you ballooned yet? You have <laughs> to try ballooning. You want to take a ride in my balloon? I have my own pilot. Is that what you call a balloon? Is, are they a pilot? It would appre- No, they're an, they're an aeronaut. That's what, that's the movie, The Aeronaut. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a uh, around the world in eighty days situation. He was an aeronaut, huh? Yeah, aeronauts. It's a way cooler name than pilot. So the, these balloons, they'd been used as like rich people play things, but and they'd occasionally been used militarily. But the most well documented for them in the military was in the American Civil War, which uh, Abraham Lincoln apparently thought balloons were neat, and so he established the Union Army Balloon Corps. And he had a open tryouts for aeronauts. So like a bunch of people came to uh, Washington, D.C. in like 1861 and 1862 to try out to be the chief aeronaut of the Union Army. And the two people that got the job were these two aeronauts named John LaMountain and Professor Thaddeus Lowe. 
Which, this is all just sounds like a Wes Anderson movie waiting to be made. It just sounds like Mystery Men that's already been made, kind of. <laughs> just coming to audition for... for Because like, it's not like you could ever have... like It's like you got a ton of experience, right? Like It's got to be just like all balls and, and vibes. A lot of monocles. A lot of people with like weird burns up their arms from, from ballooning. Maybe not a Wes Anderson movie, but something of like... You know, Will Ferrell is John LaMountain and John C. Riley is Thaddeus Lowe as like two rival balloonists. Just a redemption on Holmes. Wasn't there the movie The Aeronauts that like was just dropped on Amazon Prime because for some reason with like uh, Eddie Redmayne? With Oscar winner Eddie Redmayne. Wasn't he in that? He I think was. it's called The Aeronaut. I should have known that that's what they were called. I watched that movie. I don't think I ever discerned that that was his job title. Eddie Redmayne, and there, there's someone else who was in it that, uh... There's a co-star. That would make sense. Felicity Jones. There it is. Yeah, that's a movie. One of the foreign observers of the Balloon Corps was none other than Ferdinand von Zeppelin. And guess what he invented? The band Led Zeppelin. In a way. No. In a way. He invented the Zeppelin, which was basically just a tube-shaped balloon with a fan on it, um, which was still pretty like a lot more useful than regular hot air balloons, which couldn't really control their flight. They had to have like people with ropes like pull them down, and they were just at the mercy of wherever the wind blew them. But a, a, a Zeppelin, you could sort of control that a little bit. So, like, uh, what's the difference between a Zeppelin and a blimp? They're sort of the same thing, you know, like. There, there is a, a, a definitional difference between like a blimp, a dirigible, and a zeppelin, but I feel like you're just splitting hairs with the hot air people at that point, which, you know, they're going to come for us now that we've said that. Whoever named but, dirigibles uh, was just, they wanted a fight. Like, they were, they, cho- they were just choosing chaos. Like, was it a dirigible? Too many, too many syllables. For that few amount of letters, absolutely. The syllables to letter ratio is just off. It sounds like something you don't want to do in math. You know, like find the dirigible of a number. This is indirigible. Yeah, it's I that dirigible. I don't know. I don't even know what a dirigible is. It's like a blimp. It's like a blimp. That's all you need to know about a dirigible. That's fair. All these developments, however, they, they still didn't let us fly like those pompous birds. We were still just stuck up there, you know, being lighter than air and floating around, but... Leave it up to two Ohio bicycle boys that we'll get to right after the break. Attention, blowout listeners. Stop by the Heddle Shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Heddle's price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. And we're back. So one of my favorite state rivalries is Ohio and North Carolina because they both try to take credit for the birth of aviation, like both of their license plates. (laughs) Wait, it's on both license plates? Yeah, they both say like, I think like one says birth in flight and the other one says first in flight. Ohio is birth, North Carolina is first. I forget. I, I didn't look it up. It's wild that they've taken this to the license plates. Like they've the literal streets, huh? No. Well, they both have like 
some claim to it. I feel like Ohio's is more dubious, but I'll let you get into it. They're both talking about the Wright uh, brothers. That's what they're both competing over. Which, uh, if you don't know the Wright brothers, they were the uh, sons of an itinerant preacher living in Dayton, Ohio, and they're the ones that finally cracked the code of flying. They're the ones that finally put those birds in their proper place. That uh, they were tinkerers from the beginning. They first made printing presses and then perfected the modern bicycle. They had, they had two models, the, uh, the Van Cleef, and uh, I forget what the name of the other bicycle model they had was, but it, was, it wasn't as good as the Van Cleef, but it was also a good name. If any of you ever make it to uh, Detroit or just outside of Detroit to the Greenfield Village, like the, it's at the Ford Museum, they have every single brick from the Wright Brothers shop, their bike shop, uh, assembled like in perfect Great cycles. Yeah, in perfect working order. It's actually pretty cool. That's like that and Edison's workshop are probably the two coolest things that they've got there. But they have like in Detroit. Yeah, it's well, it's in. It's like right outside. It's like in Dearborn, but um, 25, 30 minutes closer to the airport than the city. But um, mm-hmm. they have the Wright Brothers bike shop. Yeah, Ride Cycles. It's across the, the street from Edison's boarding house, which is not historically accurate, but both are the historically accurate building to clear that up. But they like picked up the building from Dayton and they moved it? Yeah, brick by brick. So... The Wright brothers, like many people, they, they sort of see kite-like gliding as the key to flight, but they quickly change their tactic when they hear about the death of Otto Lilienthal. Y- you, kn- you know Otto Lilienthal? I do not know who Otto Lilienthal is. He's often in crossword clues. That's the only reason I had heard of him before. He's a, but... he's a big short... short uh... Oh, they love Otto. Oh, they just go like sense. German flying Lilienthal, like O T T O. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I feel but, like that's actually a pretty versatile crossword puzzle word if you're an architect. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot better than like von Bismarck. You know, that that gets old pretty quick. Ram. But uh, Lilienthal was a German inventor known as the Flying Man, who had a gliding contraption that he would show off at like country fairs and stuff like that, and he had like. 2,000 recorded flights, uh, and it was this thing that he would like hold on to that was sort of like a hang glider, but it was like a triple-decker hang glider. And he had like had successful flights, but then at one expo in 1896, he got caught in an updraft, crashed, and broke his neck, and he died the next day in a long line of people that are trying to uh, taunt the birds by uh, dressing up like... with He didn't have feathers on, but, you know... You finally cracked that code. Yeah, but when you, you fly like that, uh, sometimes you crash. And, you know, like the balloons, Lilienthal's glider was mostly at the mercy of air currents. And the Wrights believed that they needed to control the air if they were going to fly successfully and, you know, not die. So they designed their flyer to be sort of like a kite, but to have, like, ways that they could manipulate it um, to control the air flows on it. So they had wings that could bend to control roll, and they hired an engineer to build a little combustion engine for propellers on the back so they could you know, control their own airflow. And seeking an area with temperate climate and wind, as well as soft ground for the crash that they expected, the Wrights relocated to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina for their first flight, which they successfully undertook on December 17, 1903. So hence the rivalry between Ohio and North Carolina both taking credit. 
if you've been to Kitty Hawk, you understand why they've chosen Kitty Hawk. It's just like dunes and sand, but like super soft sand, like sand that's just been beaten to shit by the ocean for thousands of years. So it's all super fine. And like, but the dunes there as someone who appreciates running down a sand dune, um, strong dunes, like in that whole outer bank area. I just went for the first time this past summer, got obsessed with pirates. Then the Netflix show came out. It's been wonderful. But um, yeah, Kitty Hawk, they really do pump. That's what they've got besides the pirate thing um, in that area. It's the Wright brothers. But like, I get why they claim it because I don't think they couldn't have done that shit in Ohio. Yeah, they did it there. I'll have to visit it because I do enjoy a good sand dune. It's great sand dunes. And especially like single claim to fame tourist areas. Like, uh, like imagine Kitty Hawk's like not a big town whatsoever. So like the amount of uh, Wright Brothers related industry is like must vastly outstrip like most everything else in the area. I assume it's like, yeah, 90% of the tour. They all have pretty cool names down there. Like all the towns. Like I think there's like a Devil's Kill or something like that. And like mm-hmm. Devil's Kill was apparently like actually the name of the place where they had their first flight. Like it wasn't in Kitty Hawk. That's just like where they yeah. stayed or the closest big town. But yeah, it was like Devil's Kill Head. Like North Carolina was where they actually flew. Yeah, I'd be driving through like when we were driving down, I was like, man, there's like all these names are awesome. Devil's Kill, Kitty Hawk, Hatteras. Uh, their, their flight was only about 12 seconds and 100 feet. But that was mostly because they didn't really know how to fly it, apparently, because they had to like build an airplane and then be the first person to learn how to fly an airplane um, right after they had done it. So after some practice, they were able to travel for up to like half an hour in the plane with a passenger. And this was a major, major breakthrough. But for the next couple of years, most of the effort that they had was just convincing people that they actually legitimately had flown their airplane. Like a picture it didn't happen situation. Pretty much. This is just like, you know, like, hey, we flew an airplane and they'd be like, really? No, you didn't. <laughs> Receipts were harder to come by, I suppose, in, in the early 1900s. Yeah, like, you have to come out to this one special area where we have lots of sand dunes and the wind is just right at this one time of day and we'll show you. Well, also, I'm not sure how far, to be honest, they were down there, but like a lot of that area just will get washed out. Like, the, the the road will be very, very, very small between the sound and the ocean, like 35, 40 feet of road, um, mm-hmm. to the point where they've built quite a few bridges now. And I imagine those things were not there at the time. So it's like if you were going to go watch them fly their plane, you could also just get marooned there for a little while. <laughs> I imagine. Hey, you got to risk it just like they did. This was luckily at the same time that the motion picture camera was becoming more widespread. So like there were some synergies here that like the internal combustion engine and airplanes and uh, motion pictures were all developing around the same time. Would they like bring a projector with them? Just be like here. Eventually they, this is what eventually they did. And they would like, uh, when they got better at flying and they knew they wouldn't crash as easily, they would have like little expos and things where they would fly it around for people and charge tickets. Cause like, that's how you made money off of that invention back then. It was like, you had to start a sideshow with it. <laughs> that's how you funded your like operations. That's how you had to make like, I mean, that's how like baseball players made money barnstorming. Like, yeah, exactly. After the season. 
the season was like to build up a name. The first people that uh, like made it to the North Pole, like Admiral Perry, like the, the way that they funded their expeditions was like coming down and doing like slideshow tours and charging money for them. If you think people don't appreciate science like today and we don't like publicly fund science, just like go back a hundred years ago. Do you think anyone was going to those like Wright Brothers movies being like, this was CGI. You guys fake this. Or did you just, Maybe. Did you just like, buy the movies back then? I mean, this is when people were like diving out of the way of a, of a train coming. I was thinking that, but also like, I was wondering if there was like, we heard about the people diving out of the way because they were more fun. I was wondering if there was like three guys in there just being like fake. It, it took him six years, though, but in 1909, after many, many demonstrations that they sold their first plane to the United States Army for, the cool price of $30,000, which like, was $860,000 in today's money, but like, that's still not very much for the world's first airplane, if you think about it. Did they sell the patent, or did they sell like the physical plane? No, they just sold the physical plane. The, 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 the Army oh. had a, a set of... Uh, like specs that they had to reach that it had to fly like at least 40 miles per hour. It had to be able to carry like a pilot and like not be all that difficult to fly because they had to train people and it had to be able to carry one passenger and it had to be able to be transported. So there was like a decent amount of specs, but these are things that they already had because they were trying to like take their plane around and show it. But yeah, they just sold the one plane for that. Much I money. never want to defend the military, but like, I feel like those are reasonable requests. I don't want to disparage it. Like, and by the way, specifically the complex, not the folks. But, uh, mm. but no, that that's fascinating. And by the way, now that I know that it wasn't the patent, it was just like the single plane that presumably had been flown countless times. Um, doesn't seem like a bad deal. A used plane for 860K? Yeah. It's not you like just the imagine government. them selling it to the army guy and being like, oh yeah, you gotta like, Sometimes it won't start, so you have to just like jiggle it a little bit. <laughs> if it's cold, just like give it a couple tries. But, uh, the plane, it wasn't very fast. As I said, like, their most advanced model barely went 40 miles an hour. So they didn't really have any special equipment besides street clothes and goggles that they wore while they were flying the plane. You see these like early movies, and it's just these guys in like knickerbockers and high socks and like uh, vests and goggles and like pork pie hats as they're flying these planes, but uh, the U.S. Army would make many, many improvements, not only to the plane, but of the clothing of the people that piloted it. Which, we will come back for next time, as we actually talk about flight jackets, as we, we really didn't this time around at all. But come back next time, as we're going to talk about the flight jackets of World War I. Thank you very much for joining us on this new series. If you want to support the show... Maybe think about becoming a Heddles Plus member. You get two free giveaways a month, discounts at retailers and brands all over the world, extra episodes, just like this one, we're doing more, a Discord chat community, and you get to support uh, people like us as we're, we're trying to make this history podcast thing that isn't actually what it's talking about. But, you know, you, if you listen this far, you must kind of like it. Um, so yeah, think about joining that. Go to heddles.plus, just heddles.plus. It's that simple. And uh, sign up. You get a free month with the code extra blowout. Oh, any questions, comments, concerns? Reed, what's our email? Blowout at heddles.com. All right. Thank you very much. Bye, everybody.